When I was a newly minted follower of Jesus of 20 years old, I had a, a friend put this little book in my hands, Your Quest for God by Richard Bennett. And uh, I can remember to this day where I was when I read one of the stories toward the end of this book here. It's, it's a book that just kind of simply lays out the gospel, and it really provided a great foundation for me as a new believer. But the story that Bennett tells is about him and his wife. They were missionaries. They had traveled all throughout the world sharing the gospel, training pastors. And in this particular instance, this is decades ago now, they, they were in Uganda for a pastor's conference. Uganda had gone through some civil unrest, and so as they drove in, they could see just pits in the roadway where there had been explosions uh, from these, this unrest. And there was a military coup that was in the, in the offing as they came into the country, and so it was just dark. It was just discouraging. But when they got amongst the pastors and their wives, it was a mountaintop experience, he described it as. But several days in, as they're teaching, he's up at the, you know, he's in front of the class teaching. She's at the board outlining notes. There's a disturbance at the door, and a drunken man in a soldier's uniform bursts in brandishing a rifle, and he strides up to Dorothy and points the rifle at her heart. So everybody's just taken aback. One moment they're studying the Word of God, the next moment this woman's life is in danger and in peril. And she just calmly says, let's all pray that this man will come to know Jesus. And such cool under fire, you know, such uh, faith in God in that moment. And have somebody hostile to you, you know, this just one hair trigger moment away from death. And so... More tense seconds pass. You can imagine the, the class, as best as they're able to collect the thoughts, are praying, God, bring mercy, bring, you know, intervene. And the man drops to his knees and he says, I want to know this woman's God. And so this enemy suddenly neutralized and now wants to be part of the family. <laughs> In the blink of an eye, God works this amazing miracle. And so, of course, it's a happy ending to the story there. But for me, as a new believer, the impact upon my life was profound because it awakened me to what I'd gotten myself into, you know, that my life didn't belong to me anymore. It belonged to Jesus. And if I was going to faithfully serve him in the mission of making disciples, well, I could lose my life at some point. So that was pretty shocking good, shocking, but helped me to understand the gravity of the faith that I had in Jesus. Now, here in the States, we endure little that could be described as persecution. We have it pretty good um, as much as you know, a lack of persecution is a good thing for the church. I'm not sure it is. But uh, God, Jesus did promise that as we go throughout our mission of making disciples that we will encounter hatred, right? That we will have trouble in the world as we are obedient to Jesus. And so we have this weight of the crown that we bear as children of the King. 
and his representatives in the earth, that people will receive us with hatred at times. So how do we fulfill our calling to bring the gospel to people who are hostile, who are enemies toward God? As we look at Esther 9 today, we see God's people right in the crosshairs of their enemies. And God wins this battle over those who oppose his people. But as we think about how to apply this passage, the manner of his victory in Esther 9 is starkly different from the manner of our victory here in our world. So let's take a look here. Esther 9, we'll begin in verse 1. It says, Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha, and Delphon, and Aspatha, and Paratha, and Adalia, and Aridatha, and Parmashta, and Arisai, and Aridai, and Vaisatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the 10 sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives, and got relief from their enemies, and killed seventy-five thousand of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that day, made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. So as we think about our mission of making disciples of Jesus, wherever we live, work, study, and play, sharing Jesus, impacting people, but realizing that those people oftentimes are at best disinterested and at worst openly hostile, we see an important principle here to encourage us and to help us 
as we see God turn the tables in this situation. And that's that God turns around evil to bring about good. Haman had enacted this decree that on the 13th day of the 12th month, anybody in the empire could slaughter Jews for any reason. With no provocation, you could just go out and kill Jewish people. It's a terrible policy. Genocide. Sanctioned by the state. But when it's about to happen, because of what Mordecai was able to accomplish nine months previous, and getting a counter-edict where the Jews can now defend themselves, God's enemies are wiped out by God's people. And so we see this principle. God turns around evil to bring about good. We see this starkly in the beginning of the scriptures, right? In the life of Joseph. In fact, we get the verse that kind of spells this out for us, right? Remember, Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. He's in the kingdom of Pharaoh. He's in the prison of Pharaoh. But then he gets elevated to the right hand of Pharaoh. And in that position, he's able to... uh, avert a famine that comes, make sure that everybody has enough grain in that time of want. And his brothers encounter him when they're there to get grain. And he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And so here in Esther, as this edict of Mordecai counters the edict of Haman, many lives of God's people are saved as God takes this evil to bring about good. This is the third time in the book of Esther that we really see a high-profile instance of the tables turning, right? Remember in chapter 6, when uh, the king can't sleep at night, and he, he says, so read me the boring annals of the kingdom. And he learns that Mordecai had averted an assassination attempt. And so Haman shows up, and the, the king says, what should I do for the man who I'd delight to honor? And Haman thinks, oh, he must be talking about me because Haman's that kind of guy, right? And Haman says, you know, we should parade him through the streets on the king's horse with the robes that the king has worn. And the king says, that sounds like a great idea. Do it for Mordecai, who is Haman's mortal enemy, right? And so the tables turn and you can just see, you can see the heat waves coming off of Haman, right? Because he's so angry. You could fry an egg on his head here, right? He grinding his teeth as he leads the horse with Mordecai on it, the man that the king desired to honor. And so the tables turn. Haman ends up in the humble place of leading around Mordecai, the mortal enemy. And then in chapter 7, Haman has built his 75-foot gallows. He can't wait to hang Mordecai on it because he's offended Haman by not bowing down to him. But when Esther reveals to the king who, that Haman has uh, tried to exterminate her people, the king takes offense at that, and Haman's life is over. He's the one hung on his own gallows. And then we see here in chapter 9, his sons, after they've been executed, are also hung on the gallows as a show of um, just the justice enacted against them. And so God takes what's evil, what's meant for evil, and he brings about good because he's God. He can do those things, right? This is an aspect of his character that we can trust in completely. We see it 
all over scripture, and the best example is Jesus, right? When he dies on the cross. And the, the Romans think they've solved their little rebellion problem. And the Jews think that they've, they've taken care of this guy who's undermining their power amongst the Jews. And Satan thinks that he's finally foiled God's plan for good, that the serpent has struck a mortal blow on the heel of the Son of Man, right? But no, because Jesus rises again after three days and turns the table and brings good, the salvation of mankind, out of evil, the crucifixion of the Son of God. God brings good out of evil. And this is why Paul can tell the Romans in Romans 12, 21, one of my favorite verses in the Scriptures, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And we can do that as God's people filled with His Spirit in the world. We are vessels of good to bring about good in the world despite the evil that we see around us. Well, the primary vehicle of that good occurring here, of the tables turning on the enemies of the Jews here, is physical violence. And, uh, you know, if you're uh, on board with Jesus's peacemaking ethic, blessed are the peacemakers, right? This, this might be a little bit disturbing for us, right? So a little bit Old Testament justice when we're used to uh, New Testament grace a little bit more. Well, this physical violence is not the only way that God turns the tables in this passage here. If, if you look at verse 3 with me here, did you see this little detail here? All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews. They haven't received the physical violence. They're, they're still alive, right? And so God works providentially to bring non-Jewish allies to the side of the Jews. He transforms enemies into allies. And so we could ask all kinds of questions. So what's motivating them? Is, it, is there just kind of this culture within you know, the Persian uh, political system where you, know, you just, whoever's in charge, you ascribe loyalty to that person no matter what? Or, or is it, you know, these, they're just kind of wishy-washy wafflers. They're going to go wherever the wind blows. Or maybe they're a little more practical-minded and they realize that this kind of edict is craziness. Like, this is not how a, a functional society works, where you're just killing in the streets haphazardly, right? Or maybe they, because this is a far-flung empire that has brought in people from all kinds of ethnicities, maybe they realize, oh, my people group could be next on the list if we allow this sort of thing to happen. So they realize, no, that the side of righteousness is on the Jews. That's who I'm going to ally with. Whatever it is, they see the unity they see the preparation. They see the determination of the Jewish people. And they say, I want to be with them. I'm going to be on their side. And this is probably the reason that the casualties in this incident are so low. And you might be thinking, well, 76,000 people is not low. Well, during this period of time, estimates are that the total population of the empire was 17 million to 35 million. So if we just take that low number... Divide 76,000 into 17 million, less than half a percent of the population dies in this, in this um, unrest here. 
And remember, these are people who are aggressively seeking the downfall of the Jews. They're, they're people who just, without any shame, are trying to exterminate a people group. They're neighbors within their own cities. So God transforms these enemies into allies through the leaders. But even more astounding, as we see God turning the tables here, is something else that he's doing supernaturally in a, in a broader sense. If you look back at verse 17 of chapter 8, the last, last part of verse 17, the Jews are celebrating, but many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. And so there's just this, this favor of God that's drawing people um, into the people of God, despite the fact that they're, they're in the crosshairs right here, right? And so we see this large-scale reversal as, as people say, no, I want to be affiliated with them. I want to be identified with God's people. You see this large-scale reversal of what happens at the beginning of the book, right? Where Mordecai is this undercover Jew in Persia. He's, he's supposed to be back in Jerusalem with his people, but he's, he's, not, he's definitely not flying the flag of God's people here within the empire. And, and Esther, her real name is Hadassah, a Jewish name, but she calls herself Esther so that nobody gets wise to the fact that she also is a Jew. And so they're undercover, but here we see, no, at, the cool thing now is everybody wants to be a Jew, right? Nobody's undercover. Fly that flag, right? This, this huge reversal of what we saw earlier. And, you know, the, as we think about just the common person saying, I want to be affiliated with God's people, isn't that our desire for our communities? That the people that we live, work, study, and play amongst would say, I want to be with them. Or more importantly, I want to be with him, with King Jesus, right? That's our desire. It's God's favor to draw people to him. That's what we pray for. That's what we're praying about with VBS. Well, it's, it is important to question motives here, though. And so why did they join with God's people? It's obvious. We see it in verse 17, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Uh, in verse Two of chapter 9, fear of them had fallen on all peoples. The threat of physical violence motivates people through fear. And that's not a great thing. Of course, our desire is that people would be loved into the kingdom of God, right? There is some healthy fear involved in that. God will enact justice. The scriptures tell us that there will be physical violence for, for people who do not follow Jesus. But that's, you know, we don't fear people into the kingdom of God, right? Well, another reason for this favor on the Jews, there's a respect for Mordecai, right? The people of the, of the empire have learned to respect his leadership in the nine or so months that he's been in power. And it may be that he has some administrative skill. It may be that he's a charismatic leader. But I, I think even even bigger than that, there's just this mysterious kind of unexplainable force or favor, just kind of a wind that blows into his sails at the right time that's just pushing along the efforts of Esther and Mordecai here. And I think we can see this most starkly 
in how King Ahasuerus responds when he gets this report that 500 of his countrymen, of his subjects, have been wiped out in the streets of his capital. Like he's giddy with excitement, like he's getting the results of a football game and his team won, you know? And it's kind of not his team. Like his people that he's king over have died in the streets. Like blood is flowing in the capital of the empire. That's usually not a great thing. Like it's not, not the kind of thing that you get giddy excited over, right? But he, he continues on. He's not just kind of celebrating this. Like what do we do now? He, he, what's your next request, Esther? So remember when she's terrified earlier in the book to go into the king right? When she learns about the edict, she's, she takes her sweet time to make sure she approaches in the proper way. And now he's, he's just, what do you want? I'll give it to you, whatever you want. And so God has aligned the king to the, the trajectory of Mordecai and Esther here. It's remarkable. And it's another example of how God is transforming enemies into allies. Just a supernatural transformation. And here's what's super exciting about this idea for me, y'all. We've talked about this throughout the, the book of Esther. Uh, Esther and Mordecai are flawed heroes, right? As we, come, as we come at it from people who love Jesus with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors like ourselves, I don't know if we can confidently say that Mordecai and Esther love God with all their hearts, souls, minds, and strengths. We have no evidence of it. We can say that they do love their people and that they, they are eager to work for justice for their people, right? There's, there's this ethnic pride or racial pride, solidarity. But we don't see hearts for God. We don't see worshipful, prayerful devotion from them. We don't see a, a fixation on God's honor and his glory, his fame, the kingdom, and we don't hear any of that in Esther. And yet, he, he backs up the Brinks truck to just protect them, to provide for them, to supernaturally move forward this mission, what they're, what they're doing in order to protect the Jewish people. And so for us, y'all, I, as the church, we are supposed to be people who love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? It should be obvious. It should ooze out of us. People should ask us questions because they see the worshipful devotion in our lives. And we're on mission for the kingdom, right? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, right? And Jesus promises that he'll be with us as we do that. That's the mission we're on. It's God's mission, right? If God's going to bless this dodgy purpose, right, led by dodgy people, how greatly will he bless his sanctified mission with his people, right, his redeemed people? Super encouraging to think about that. And so we can have great confidence as we endure the awkwardness that often comes as we try to connect with new people, right? And as we just deal with rejection that often happens, you know, as we scatter the word of God abroad, only a quarter of the time does it land in good soil. So we, we have to deal with some rejection. And 
we can have great confidence as we kind of muster the perseverance to keep going in the mission, even when we don't necessarily see the fruit or see the results. God will accomplish his work. It's his work, right? So as we look at this whole thing, as we see God turning the tables, it's super encouraging, right? Transforming enemies into allies, turning evil into good. But, Ethan, 76,000 people died. Like, I don't understand the connection here. Like, we're not fighting a holy war. We're not going out killing people who won't follow Jesus. Amen. Amen. Right? We're not out in the streets pursuing people, running after them because we want to hurt them. It's a little creepy if we're out there running after them because we want to uh, love them, right? But, but it's like we sang in the song, right? Your goodness is running after me. God's goodness is pursuing people to love them into the kingdom, to help them enjoy the peace, the love, the joy, the hope that we know as God's people, right? And so his, his boundless love is pursuing people, and we get to be the carriers of that hope. That's, that's what we want for people, right? We don't, it's like the Jews had pure motives. They had the right to take the plunder from the people that they were defending themselves against. It said it in Mordecai's edict, but they didn't take any of it because all they wanted was peace. They just wanted to be able to flourish and to live life, and that's what we want for people is for them to flourish and live the life that God intended for them in obedience and in worship to the God who created them and loves them and wants, to, wants to, them to enjoy fellowship with him. Jesus said, the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy, but I have come that they, have, they may have life and have it to the full, right? So we want full life for people. But here's the thing about life. Except for in the miraculous phenomenon of birth through reproduction, which is pretty amazing when you stop and think about it. New life requires death. And so God uses death to bring new life, to bring that peace, to bring that joy, to bring that hope. Now, we're not, again, we're not saying that we need to go out and physically kill people, right? We're not talking about physical death. We're talking about spiritual death. To receive spiritual life, to be reborn spiritually into the kingdom of God, you must spiritually die to yourself. And actually, the thing is, we're not bringing spiritual death to anybody. If you're not in Jesus, you are spiritually dead, Paul makes it clear when he's talking to the Ephesians. He's he's talking to them as believers, but he says, back then, before you trusted in Jesus, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. He says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So apart from Jesus, we are dead. We are under condemnation. We receive our life through Jesus. An enemy must be crucified with Jesus in order to become an ally, 
And so Paul tells the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the, the death of an enemy is necessary. Jesus vanquishes his foe through the death of his foe. And he replaces that old life with a new life that's redeemed, that's sanctified, and that's now attuned to the mission of the kingdom, to have a purpose given by God that will bring his glory here in the world, reveal his glory in the world. And so in the ultimate table turning, God brings life out of death. He does it in Persia where 76,000 enemies, people who just want, they want the destruction of this people. They are hell-bent on wiping the Jews out. And so God removes them in order to provide a period of safety, security, peace for his people. Now you, you may be thinking, well, yeah, but the second day, 300 more people hanging Haman's sons on the gallows, that's kind of overkill, isn't it? Well, there is a cancer that needs to be rooted out here, every last trace of it. And how do I know that? Well, think about this for a second. 500 people died in Susa on the first day. They had the legal right to go attack Jewish people that day. And they died. There were 300 more people who watched their buddies die the first day and who now no longer had the legal right on the second day to go out and attack Jews, and they still did it, seeing that their buddies died, and they had no legal right to it. And they lost their lives because of that. Now that's entrenched evil, y'all. And God takes away that evil. He provides life for his people through their death. We see this ultimately, the table turning, when God sends his own son, his own sinless son to die on the cross, right? And so we deserve the penalty for our sin, but Jesus takes it. I'm, I should be crucified there, right? And Jesus takes it. <clears throat> and then Jesus conquered sin. He conquered death, the last enemy, by rising from the dead. And because of that, we receive new life. And we're filled with the Spirit of Jesus. We have the hope of eternal life with God forever in His presence. And we get that when we're willing to leave behind whatever of us is not of God. And we're willing to put the old man, our old self, to death. God turns the tables on the condemnation that we deserve as enemies and rebels against him, people who want to go our own way and do our own thing. And he made the way open for us to enjoy the blessings of being with him, being with his people, and serving in the world as his very representatives. God uses death to bring new life. So imagine for a moment the difference Jesus' table turning makes for how we experience hardship and the challenges that come from being a human being. Knowing that God has turned the tables even once to make an evil situation good 
is enough to supply hope for us to persevere. But to think that God has done it repeatedly and on a small scale and on a large scale, that should be a source of great confidence. But even more, as we think about our calling to make disciples, and as we risk discouragement, attempting to make disciples out of people who are openly opposed to Jesus, don't you get excited when you think about what the Jews in Persia accomplished together? I'm not talking about engaging in battle with those who came out to hurt them. But isn't it inspiring to see how the Jews united together in support of one another? And wasn't their simple unity a major part of their success? People either wanted to join them or decided that it was better not to oppose them. So what could we accomplish together as our church gathers in our city to do good to those who might seek to do us harm? I'm so proud of my impact group, y'all. We went out to City Park yesterday. We did a great job planning this. And granted, we had two all-stars. We had a a full team of all-stars, but we had some big resources to help us out. We had somebody who drove his trailer with a smoker and uh, an electric griddle out there, or a propane-fired griddle, and uh, made burgers and pulled pork. I mean, people were talking about, how, how can you give this away? You should be selling this stuff. And then we, we have an ice cream magnate uh, who's part of our church, who's part of our group, and so he was able to bring out a bunch of ice cream to give away. Um, it, you know, it's a lot of fun to stand in the back of a pickup truck and just kind of yell to the playground, hey, who wants free ice cream? And just to see people come over and ask for ice cream and come back and get seconds and, and know that the guy who's doing it has a big smile on his face and doesn't want any of the credit. He wants Jesus to get all of the credit. And that was our whole team. Like, our whole team did such a great job having conversations with people on the playground. We were handing out little goodie bags for the kids. They had bubbles and notebooks and all treats, all kinds of good stuff in them. Um, and people responded. They appreciated it. They, they, ask, they naturally ask questions when you do stuff like that. Why are you doing this? And, hey, we just want to bless the community. We want to we replace some of the evil that's out there with goodness. Give people hope. Help people know that they're loved, that we see you. We care about you. So we had conversations with like 33 people sitting there having, we had to eat together at tables. And uh, there was a family reunion next to us. They asked us to take a picture at one point. They came over, got a bunch of ice cream, and it was just a lot of fun to show God's goodness to people. And I'm so thankful for the unity of our team to do that, of our group. Um, man, we, we didn't have like some evangelistic plan. We didn't go out there with a tract or anything, but we got to talk about Jesus. We got to talk about his church and his people and his hope. And it was a lot of fun. So what kind of good could we do? How could we turn the tables of negativity, of darkness that are out in our world into positivity and light and ultimately self-orientation versus Jesus orientation? Like I'm created to worship Jesus. Thank you for helping me to know what I was created for. That was me over 20 years ago, y'all. I thought it was all about me and then I learned, oh, it's all about Jesus and I found life. The weight of the crown we bear as disciple makers and representatives of the kingdom can be daunting. We can go out into our cities and neighborhoods with the confidence that God will accomplish his purposes 
turning the tables on what looks daunting and bringing victory for his glory. Let's pray about that. Lord God, we praise you because you are the sovereign of all creation. You are our light and our salvation. Whom shall we fear? You are the stronghold of our lives. Of whom shall we be afraid? Though an army encamp against us, our hearts shall not fear. Though war arise against us, yet we will be confident. We believe that we shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. We wait for you, Lord. Make us strong and let our hearts take courage. We wait for you, Lord. Amen.